earth before he is arrested and beaten and mocked and then crucified on a cross. Now, each week we gather in this room between now and Easter will be a, a, a ramping up, if, if you will, as we get closer and closer to Jesus's death. This week we're going to be looking at is traditionally called Passion Week in, in the church. And, and, and as we explore it, I want us to pay attention to the ways that Mark reveals to us a bigger picture of what Jesus's mission is on this earth. Now, I think if, if I were to ask any of us what Jesus came to do on this earth, it would be a good and normal response to say that Jesus was sent to this earth to die on a cross. The cross is central to our faith. It's everywhere. It's, it's central to who we are as followers of Christ. So this answer is not wrong. For us to say that it is about Jesus' death and resurrection is not wrong. But it's more than that as well, right? It's not a complete answer because Jesus came to accomplish more than just to die on a cross and come back to life. Jesus' mission that the Father sent him with is, is kind of more like, if you would picture, a multifaceted diamond. You can look at that diamond from different sides, different angles. There's different faces to that diamond, but it's all still the same diamond. And so it is with Jesus' mission on this earth. It's this same mission, just a different side that we might be looking at in that moment. One side of the diamond tells us that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Another side of the diamond shows us that Jesus would fulfill the imagery of God's promises to us in the books that Moses was, had written. Another side of the diamond reveals that Jesus is the Son of Man who must also suffer and die and rise again. And yet another side of the diamond shows us that Jesus came to establish a new thing called the church, which was not a, a building or a, a physical spot on a map, but a spiritual body of people that are all unified in his life, in the life of Jesus. And so today, as we look in the end of Mark chapter 11 and the beginning of Mark chapter 12, it's this last, this last side of the diamond that we just mentioned that we're going to be looking at together today. This idea that, that Jesus came not just to die for our sins, but in doing so, in rising to life, he was doing a work where he was bringing us all together in him. We, he was making us one in him, as we trust in him, as he makes us new and recreates us, he's making us one in him, a part of this thing called the church. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Mark chapter 11. We're going to pick up in verse 27. If you want to grab the Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, it's going to be on page uh, 848. And we're going to, I'm going to read for us the last few verses of chapter 11 and the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 12. Let me go ahead and read Mark eleven twenty seven through Mark 12, verse 12. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven? Or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? 
but shall we say from man? Well, then they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parables against them. So they left him and went away. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, this, for your word. We thank you for your desire to reveal yourself to us. Lord, I pray you'd give us ears to hear you this morning, hearts to embrace with courage the truths that you show us, and the strength to, to walk in faithfulness as a result of your word to us this, night, this morning and this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the third day now, for, I'm sorry, for the third time now in a couple of days, Jesus enters the temple courts. And, and, and this is the very same place that Jesus was the day before, recorded as turning over tables, money changers tables, and throwing out merchants who were selling and buying uh, uh, animals for sacrifice in the temple courts. This is the same place for us to understand the important context of our passage. See, the, the, the temple is more than just a place where people went to be. It, it was a place that represented where God dwelled among his people. It, it was a place where God said, uh, I will dwell among you. You will come here and I will be among you, my people. It was a place where they could hear who their God was and who they were as his children, as his people. Now, on other occasions and other situations, Jesus would go into synagogues. He would go into the temple and he would teach and preach or heal the sick. Those were pleasant occasions. But when he goes into the temple courts on this day, it's not such a, a pleasant day. See, where, where we pick up, Jesus is, is walking in right about the same place where, where, where it had been quite chaos the day before. I'm sure it was a much quieter day on this day, but the day before had been a day when, when lots of business was going on. In fact, uh, I think I mentioned last week, but Josephus, an ancient historian, has recorded that one year, he counted on one year on Passover, there were 255,000 lambs that were bought and sold in one week in the temple courts. I mean, can you imagine the chaos that that is? Just the, the, the lambs alone being sold in that place. 
This is the place where God's glory dwells. This is the place where God wanted to meet with his people, where, where he wanted not to just have them worship, but where he wanted to reveal himself to his people in such a way that they, they, they drew nearer to him. They trusted him more deeply and more passionately. And this place had become a place where they were buying and selling animals for sacrifice, where they were changing money and, and exchanges from pilgrims from all over the, the land. If you can picture it, I think it's fair to picture lots of noise and lots of chaos. Now, again, you can read about this earlier in chapter 11, but, but at issue for uh, today, what, what the issue is that the chief priests and the elders and the scribes have with Jesus today is the fact that he had gone about the temple the day before kicking merchants out overturning the, the tables of, of money changers. They, they, they have an issue with the authority that Jesus exhibited. What right does he have to come in here into our house, our place, our, our space that's been entrusted to us? What right, what authority does he have to do these things? See, Jesus, Jesus was, I don't know if enraged is the right word, but Jesus was deeply passionate for his father's house. He, 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 he had a, a passion to understand that, that the temple was a place of prayer and, and communion, meeting with God. And yet it had been turned into some, something that Jesus would call a den of robbers. Basically, it was this place where merchants would, would set these steep prices so that those who had to buy sacrifices to come into the temple and to come into God's presence were, were kind of, it was a prohibitive price. It, it, it was like taking advantage of those that, that were less fortunate and saying, hey, if you want to sacrifice our God, well, you got to meet our price. They didn't, they didn't set the bar low for people to come into God's presence to, to, to be able to make sacrifice and, and enter into God's presence, they made it more difficult to come into the temple and worship God. This place had become a den of robbers. To allow this sort of thing to go on was actually an abuse of the responsibility and the authority that had been entrusted to the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And so Jesus is rightfully upset, and, and, and does what he does in that, that famous scene where he cleanses the temple, where he casts out all these animals and merchants and, and money changers, drives them out with a whip. Jesus is rightfully upset that, that these leaders have taken the responsibility that's been entrusted to them, the, the authority that's been given to them, and they've abused it. They've wasted it. They've made it more about their own benefit than facilitating this relationship between God and his people. And so this is a question, or this is what's behind the question that the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders asked Jesus in verse 28 when he comes back to the temple. Essentially, they're saying, we're the ones in charge of this temple, what, what gives you the right? What gives you the authority to do what you've done? This is not your responsibility. This is ours. Where do you get the authority from to do, to do what you did? Well, in response, Jesus employs a, a tool, an argument, an argumentative tool, where he answers their question with a question. Right? He says, I'll, I'll answer your question if you answer 
my question. He says in verse 30, he says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, this question may seem innocent enough, right? It, it, it may seem kind of like an inconsequential, innocent question. But if you were a chief priest or a scribe or an elder standing in front of Jesus, you would have been troubled by this question. Why? Well, because Jesus was asking them if they believe that John, or if they believe that God was behind John's mission. And they also knew that the people loved John. And so they had to either decide would they affirm John's mission and purpose or not. Now, if they say no, that it wasn't, that John's mission wasn't from heaven and that God wasn't behind John, well, then they were going to be, they were afraid that the people would be upset, that they would lose favor with the people, that, that the, the power and the responsibility and the authority they had over the people would, would diminish and would maybe even be lost because now the people don't like what the chief priests and the elders and the scribes are saying because the chief priests and the elders and the scribes are diminishing the ministry of John the Baptist, who we love, right? But if they say yes, that God is behind John's ministry, that his ministry was from heaven, well, then they'd be admitting that John's ministry was, was given divine authority, that the things that John declared and did was from heaven, and one of the things John did and said was after me, one who is greater than me who will come, one who's Sandals I'm not even able to, uh, I'm not worthy to untie, right? John identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the one who takes away the sins of the world. So if they say, yes, God is behind John's ministry, well, then they essentially have to admit that Jesus comes with the divine authority, authority to do what he's done. So, so their question leaves them with those two choices, Either anger the people and lose their influence and authority over the people or, or, or admit that Jesus has been sent by God with divine authority. And what do they choose? The coward's way. They, you know, we don't, we don't know. We don't know, so we're not going to answer your question. But guess what? They did know. They do know. They understand. They didn't answer the question because they didn't know. They answered the question because they didn't want to have to say out loud what they knew was true. That Jesus was there with divine authority. And so since they wouldn't answer Jesus, he doesn't answer them directly. But he does answer them. He, he, I, I would propose he does actually answer the religious leaders in our passage, but he does it through a parable. Now, we all know that parables are stories with a, a, a teachable point. They're, they're, they're lessons for us. And, and Jesus gives us this lesson through, through the parable of the landowner and the vineyard, right? The point of the parable here that Jesus tells in Mark 12 is that, that Israel and its religious leaders have been unfaithful. They have not been faithful with the responsibility that God has entrusted to them. And so he would remove them and give responsibility of the vineyard to others. Now, now, as we read this parable, not every detail in the parable is meant to be allegorized. In other words, not every detail in the story is somehow significant to what we're to take from it. But there are very important details, I think, that as we read, we could pick up on just naturally as we read this story following after Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders in the temple courts. 
You see, God is the landowner. And Israel's, represented by its religious leaders, are the tenants who, who have been unfaithful with the authority that's been given to them. They've been unfaithful to, to grow and expand the land and, and to give back to God what is due him. Well, I mean, if you've read Israel's history, I don't think it's a stretch to realize that, that Israel had this kind of broken relationship with God where they would repent and come back to God and then forget God's grace and salvation and drift away from him, turn away from him. And then they would cry out to God and he would send them someone to to rescue them and they would return to God and be faithful to God and then they would soon after forget God's grace and forgiveness and faithfulness and they would drift from God again. I mean, actually, replace Israel's history with my history with God, right? I mean, that's true for all of us. This stubborn, broken heart that as hard as we try to be faithful to God, we cannot help but drift from him, turn from him, turn our backs on him, and yet God is gracious to come after us. And so here in in our passage, we're, we're, we're reminded of Israel's history that they've proven themselves time and time again to be this stubborn, unfaithful nation. So why don't we take a look at verses 6 to 8 in in chapter 12 and just kind of see where this story goes as we see this relationship between God and Israel unfold. Starting in verse 6, he still had one other, a beloved son. And finally he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, earlier in our parable, the, the story tells of these other servants of the landowner that are sent to the tenants to go and collect what is rightfully theirs. In those times, it was not uncommon that there would be a, a rich landowner who would, who would take their land and develop it for something and then hire these, these tenants to come in and take care of the land. And the tenants would receive a portion of the harvest as also the, the, the landowner would receive a portion of the harvest. So by sending these servants to the tenants, the landowner was not doing anything that was unusual for a landowner to do. And for the tenants to give some of their harvest to the landowner, they were not doing anything unusual for what was expected of them to do. What is unusual for the tenants to do what they did to each of these ser- servants that the landowner sends. They beat them. They throw them out of the, out of the vineyard. They send them away empty-handed. They kill some of them time and time and time again. And if you look at Israel's history, this is actually what happens to the prophets throughout the Old Testament. Numerous times, God sends the prophets to his people with a message, repent, come back. I'm here for you. I'll rescue you. I'll, I've redeemed you. You are mine. And time and time again, Israel may listen for a little while, but ultimately they cast away what the servants have been sent to do. And some of the prophets have even, had even been killed until, until the landowner sends one more that he has, his beloved son. Hopefully it's clear that the beloved son of the landowner is the beloved son of God. Right? I mean, if, if, you, if you read other parts of the Bible, you know that Jesus is the one who God speaks over at his baptism and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus 
it is the son who is sent into the world because the father loves the world and wants to save the world through his only son. Jesus is the beloved son whose death on the cross, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders orchestrate. And so here the farmers are, are, are kind of left with this one last option. And, and you, you hear from their narrative, from, their, from what they say, they're planning to steal the land from the landowner, to, to, to plot, to say, hey, if we kill the son, then there's no other, nowhere else for the inheritance to go. It'll be ours. We can just keep it, right? And so you think, well, will they get the last word? No, the farmers, they don't get the last word here in Jesus' parable. And, and neither do the Jewish religious leaders, because in verse 9, the farmers don't get the beloved son inheritance after they kill him. What do they get? Verse 9 says, that, What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, see, Jesus anticipates here God's justice returning to the land, God's judgment on Israel for their unfaithfulness and abuse of authority that God had entrusted to them. And so as a result of the beloved son's death, the owner, God himself, would give the vineyard to others. I, I think that this is perhaps what makes this parable so terrifying for the religious leaders and kind of stoked that, that anger that, that, he, that, Jesus, that they had towards Jesus. See, by choosing a vineyard, the religious leaders knew that Jesus was talking about them as tenants. By choosing a vineyard, they, they knew, without Jesus even saying it directly, that they were under the spotlight a bit. They were under the microscope. They, they were being judged for who they had been as religious leaders, those responsible with the authority to rule over the temple, the place of God's presence, where God's people could come and, and, and know him as God and know who they are as children of God. You see, in the Old Testament, God often referred to Israel as his vine. In, in Psalm 80, the psalmist writes about God and says, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took deep root and filled the land. Does this sound familiar to you? Does it sound like the history of Israel, who was rescued out of Egypt and led into the promised land through the wilderness for 40 years, and into that promised land where, he, where God drove out the other nations from before them? He cleared the land. He drove out the nations and planted Israel in the promised land. The vine is Israel, right? So when Jesus tells the parable of a vineyard planted by a landowner, it would be clear to these religious leaders who, who he was talking about that, that they were being called to account for their abuse of the authority and the power that they'd been entrusted with and, in fact, then led Israel astray. So all this was anticipated long ago through the prophet Isaiah. I'm going to read a, a passage for us. And I want you to listen for the similarities between Jesus' parable he tells in Mark 12 and, and Isaiah's prophecy of what God would do with the unfaithful vine. In Isaiah 5, let me read the first seven verses. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. 
He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled upon. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. See, the vineyard, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And when God looked for it to produce grapes, it produces something else. Something that is not of what God had intended for his people to produce. It it was not righteousness. It was not justice. It produced bloodshed instead of justice. And an outcry of abuse rather than righteousness. See, Isaiah's prophecy of God's disappointment with Israel and the outcome would be judgment and death. But there's a key difference here in these two passages. Because where Isaiah describes the vineyard being abandoned and judged, Jesus' parable actually ends in good news. Jesus' parable begins to articulate the gospel message for us. He takes the Old Testament prophecy and adds in the good news of what God is doing. Because the good news here being that God will not destroy the vineyard, but give it to new tenants. See, I think Jesus' parable offers offers us hope and a new beginning. What Jesus came to do was to restore justice and righteousness in the vineyard. So where Isaiah's prophecy ends in judgment, Jesus' parable starts a new beginning. Look at verses 10 and 11 again for us. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, this scripture is actually quoted from Psalm 118, the very same uh, psalm where we uh, read last week that the people cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's the very same psalm, right? Familiar to the the Israelites. And so by quoting these words, Jesus identifies the stone that the builders rejected with himself, knowing that though Israel and its leaders would reject him, God had a different plan. God was offering hope and a new beginning, a restoration of justice to land, because he was going to build a new building, a new temple, with Jesus as the cornerstone or the foundation upon which he builds this temple. Now, I think this was especially important imagery to the early church. 
because it, it encouraged them and, and kept them focused on moving forward with this new work that God was doing. After Pentecost, when they start preaching and people come to faith, they realize it's not just people coming to Jesus, it's the fact that God is building a spiritual body on this earth. All of us united into one through Jesus Christ. But in those early days of the church, they needed that firm reminder that they, this was not a work they were doing, but a work God was doing on the foundation of his beloved son, Jesus. Listen to how Peter responds to religious leaders who are attacking him for pro proclaiming the gospel in Acts chapter 4. Let me just read a few verses. Uh, my, my verses are going to be in the NASB, but just listen to them. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone, and this is not Peter saying he is the stone. He's saying Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no, no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So I think by this time, Jesus had made it clear to his apostles in the early church that the religious leaders, as representatives of Israel, were the builders who rejected God's beloved son. But in their rejection, God gave authority to new tenants, to other tenants. The church, which is the new Israel and grafting together believers from Israel with believers from outside of the nation of Israel, had begun. This is the new work that God was doing. By the way, for those of you who theologically might be concerned about uh, connecting the church with the new Israel, this is not some sort of replacement theology where God throws away all of Israel. This is a grafting in. This is an expanding of the church where those who are outside of the nation of Israel are given opportunity to come in and be grafted into the vine, to become a part of the work that God is doing. This is a, a, a new work that God is doing. What, what, what the religious leaders had done in Jesus' day were, was, was, was essentially to desecrate the temple by, by, by making it into a marketplace. And this was really just not the, the only reason. This was one among many reasons that God would take the vineyard away from Israel and give it to the new tenants, the church. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes this about Jesus. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Church, Jesus is the foundation of his body, but he's not some, like, passive, stationary, foundation. He's a living foundation. And, and, and this is then becoming the new temple in which all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's what we are a part of. We are a part of the church, the foundation, the new temple that, that, that God is building in his, with his people, all united by, in one in Christ. 
And so this is the new work that Jesus is doing in restoring justice and righteousness as he overturns the tables of money changers in the temple and drives out the, the merchants. Jesus was ruling with the authority that God had given him. Jesus was ruling that the ancient of days had given to the Son of Man. And guess what? He entrusts this work, this responsibility to us, to his church, to carry it on. Now, if you think about it, and I think it's a fair question to ask, why would God entrust this, his, his presence and his church to us, right? Why, why would he do that? Why, how are we any different than the religious leaders of Jesus' day? We're guided by the same broken hearts that they were. How... how how are we to be entrusted to be fruitful and faithful with God's church and expect any different outcome than what they had, right? We, we may be tempted to think we're better than the religious leaders, but we're not, right? Pride has a real uh, place in my heart, selfishness, greed, all those things that, that were at work in the relig religious leaders' hearts are the same threats, the same realities that we struggle with and fight with day to day. So how are we to expect any different outcome when we're being entrusted with the, the, the vineyard of God? Well, to answer this, I want us to go back to that vine imagery. See, in Isaiah, the vineyard deserved judgment and destruction for producing wild grapes that they were not intended to produce. In Jesus' parable, the old, old tenants deserved judgment and losing their place as farmers over the landowner's vineyard for their wicked treatment of the landowner's grace and mercy. But here's the difference. Only the son, through only the son's death, the landowner opens up an opportunity to invite other tenants in, to care for his vineyard. That's you and me. In other words, God removed those who were unfaithful from being his people, and in Christ Jesus grafted into the family of God, the church, all those who trust in Jesus' death on their behalf. But what's even better What's even more encouraging for us this morning is that the fruit we bear and the harvest we produce, we don't really produce. Stick with me for a moment, right? I mean, we, we, look, at the, we, we look at the religious leaders and we see how unfruitful and unfaithful we, they were, and we think, okay, now it's our turn. How are we going to do any differently, right? Well, the key is we're not, Right? We don't really produce the fruit that God expects. Jesus does. Our responsibility is to faithfully abide in him. In John 15, here's some of Jesus' famous words that he declares. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you, unless you abide in me. Again, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. See, this, this is the work of the church. Right? We're not the saviors of this world. 
We're not going to convert people to following Jesus. We're, we're not going to change people's lives and make, them, make their circumstances so much better. Jesus does that, right? Our job, our, our, our work is to abide in him, to submit ourselves to him and let him do that work of transformation in us so that his glory might be revealed to the world, that they might see a God who does an amazing work of transformation in people's lives as they come to him and surrender to him. And so the work of the church is to abide in him, to, to trust in him, to depend on him, to obey him, to remain in him and so doing bear much fruit. That's the God we love and worship. He, he's the God who sees our brokenness. He sees our, our inability to produce righteousness and justice in our own power and strength and instead produces the fruit for us and in us. So church, we're going to turn a corner here as we begin to close. This life is not about you. This life is not about me. This life is about the new work God is doing through his chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. God is building a holy temple of his presence with Jesus, his, his beloved son, as the most important foundation, uh, foundational stone upon which he's building. That means the rest of the building all depends on this cornerstone as we are built up. Until we all attain maturity in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. God is doing the work. We abide. So how, how can God's word challenge us to live in light of this truth? truth? Well, most of all, I, I would say that our passage serves as a reminder of what we are a part of through Jesus. Even in those days, as Jesus got closer and closer to the cross, even as he was facing these religious leaders in confrontation, and, and, and they were getting angrier at him and angrier at him, Jesus reminds us of what God is doing in us and through us. This life is not about us. It's about more than us. It's about something bigger than us. As followers of Jesus, we are included in the body of Christ, the church. It's a living community of people who are united by Jesus across time and space. We, we are empowered by Jesus. We're equipped by the life of Jesus. We're called to share in the, in the mission of Jesus. We, we need to stop thinking that the church is here to satisfy our, our wants and our desires. What matters is not what you get out of church today, but what God built up today because you were here, because you showed up. Being a part of the body of Christ is not mostly about what you can gain from it, but about how you are contributing to the overall health and maturity of the church, the body of Christ. We shouldn't be coming to church to have a good and uplifting experience with the music. We need to stop believing that it's only a good Sunday if you can get something from the pastor's sermon. Do you see what I'm saying here? Being a part of the body of Christ is not about what we can get out of it, but what God is doing in us all as we come together, whether that's Sunday morning, Wednesday evening, Thursday morning, 
whatever day of the week, when we gather together, where two or more are gathered in my name, I am there, Jesus says. And when we come together like that, he builds us up into this spiritual body, this new temple in which Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. So church, God is building a holy temple of his presence with Jesus, his beloved son, as that most important foundational stone. You, you may think that your regular presence in the faith community uh, doesn't really matter, but you couldn't be more wrong. We need one another as we abide in Christ. You know, it's not a, 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 the vine of Jesus and one branch. There's lots of branches, and those branches need each other. So church, my encouragement is maybe more just to look back to that reminder of what God is doing in us and through us. Let's show up and watch God build us together on the foundation of Jesus' life. Let me pray for us.